Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and our world. Policy Forum Pod is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. I'm Sharon Bessel, and I'm here solo today because my wonderful co-host, Anna Greta Hunter, is away being a cardiologist. And of course, we miss her terribly, but I'm sure her patients are glad to have her with them. Today, we're going to be talking about democracy in Australia, but perhaps reflecting a little globally. And I know that this is a conversation that Arna Greta is very disappointed not to be a part of. In countries around the world, democracy is under strain as the legitimacy of representatives is questioned and public trust declines. The rise of populism is changing the way in which many of us think about democracy and about democratic representation, while new forms of leadership are emerging around the world. And in local communities, some really interesting things are happening. These are complex issues as democracy appears to be undermined and on the decline in some places and experiencing an exciting rejuvenation in others. So to talk through some issues around democracy, representation, political trust and decision making and what's happening in local communities here in Australia, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Carolyn Hendricks who is a wonderful colleague here at the Crawford School and one of the leading thinkers on democracy and governance, including participatory democracy, public deliberation and representation. Carolyn's most recent book is Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times, and she's just finalising a new book on participatory democracy in action. Carolyn also has a chapter in a really interesting recently released book on the 2022 Australian federal election called Watershed. And that book is available free online from ANU Press. And we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Carolyn was very recently awarded the incredibly prestigious Australian Research Council Future Fellowship to continue her work on representative democracy. Carolyn, it is such a delight to have you with us. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. It's great to be here. Carolyn, maybe we can start with the state of democracy. You've written about how elected governments are facing a legitimacy crisis, and we often hear about that. We hear about declining public trust in political institutions and and sometimes the rise of populism. What's led to this crisis of trust and crisis of legitimacy that we're hearing about? Yeah, Sharon, that's a big question to open with. 
and and there's obviously lots of diagnoses out there about what why trust in government and trust in democracy is declining ranging from some of them that you mentioned in the introduction populism and and I guess people's sense of not being represented by the major institutions that we would expect to represent us that would be the political parties and even at the local level people feeling that their their elected member is not either listening or representing the sort of diverse views that they have or that the representative is a nice person but they're beholden to to a party that won't take nuanced positions on issues but I think there's also a, a broader picture and this is sort of a global one around people wanting to engage in politics in different ways that are quite different to what's on offer and so we get a picture of distrust and disengagement from democracy through large surveys but those questionnaires of or surveys often aren't tapping into what people are doing so they're asking questions about you know trust and you know elections and I guess what we might consider the conventional spaces of of democracy, parliaments and parties and elections. But they're not asking what people are doing in their communities, in the school groups, on the sporting grounds and in other spaces of democracy. And that's where I guess some of my work's been digging around trying to understand understand that. I mean, there's there's work out there, a lot of work on, on what people are doing online both to undermine democracy, but also, you know, to to enhance it. So the, the picture of distrust and decline in democracy is a complex one. We're still trying to unpack it. Uh, and Carolyn, like you, most of my work is is qualitative work, and so that digging around what sits behind the numbers and really trying to understand what's happening for people, what's happening for communities and societies more broadly is is what I love to do. And you've been doing some fascinating, really in-depth research in communities where you've looked at, at what communities are trying to do in terms of democratic repair. And that work started with your study of citizens in Indi uh, back in 2014-2016. And Indi has featured in a lot of discussions in Australia about new types of representation. And, of course, more recently we've also seen the rise of the so-called teal independence in the most recent Australian federal election, suggesting the voters really are looking for something different. Can you share with us what your research over recent years on, on the community independence movement tells us about political representation and how that's changing, how people's expectations of their representatives are changing? Yeah, so, I mean, as people would, would, would be following, there, there has been pockets around Australia and it's not what, you know, it's not in every electorate, but, but um, in our research, which I've been doing with, with Dr Richard Reed, we've been looking at the communities that self-organised to put forward an independent candidate in the last election, the 2022 election. So it turns out there were at least 40 electorates out of 151 that put you know, self-organised and put forward a so-called community independent candidate. A lot of those stories aren't really well known because there were at least maybe 10 or 12 that got a lot of media attention. But what we've been doing, Rich and I have been working and, and talking and visiting in some cases these electorates and trying to understand what motivated the, the people in those electorates to 
self-organise and select uh, a candidate to contest in that election. In some cases, they decided not to put a candidate forward, but they, they had a group. In other cases, they held elaborate processes of pre-selection and sort of community consultation to, to work out what the issues were and who might best represent those. Um, in other cases, like the ones that were mostly successful, uh, a community group sort of tapped someone on the shoulder who they thought might have the best electoral success. So there's quite a varied uh, picture of how communities at the local level have sought to contest in, in what is a fairly difficult space of electoral democracy against some pretty big uh, political party machinery. <laughs> so what we find is not sort of one model. So you often hear in the press people referring to the Indo model or the community independent model or the Climate 200 model. But actually when you when you look across these 40 different electorates, there's such a variety of pathways that communities have taken and I guess what's really interesting, I think, is it's it's very much place-based. So it's almost the opposite of what you see in political parties, which is a sort of homogenising or, or sort of bifurcating the Australian population into, to, you know, red or blue. Maybe a bit of green there <laughs> and, and a bit, few other flavours, but essentially not a lot of recognition of local and place-based issues. And so in these communities that we've been researching, a lot of that, those issues around place and its uniqueness um, really comes, to, comes out, I think. And Carolyn, how does that tapping on the shoulder take place? You know, how, how do these local initiatives form? Is it, is it driven by kind of one or two community leaders? Is it kind of more organic than that? What are you seeing in terms of, of how those community representatives are are selected or identified? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. There's quite a diversity and a lot of this this democratic work or repair work is very relational. So these groups often emerge through people who have seen what's happened in other electorates and they might self-organise. So that's often, in some cases, it's through people uh, being active on a social media platform and then literally random people connecting and then realizing they have common kind of interests or a common passion to to create something or to try something in other cases they might be existing groups that work for example or sets of people that might have been working together on uh in in the case of some of the urban electorates on climate change um, or integrity issues and they they use those existing advocacy networks they had, if you liked, and connected them up and then created a, this, this group working on democratic repair. A lot of our work's been in the rural and regional seats because they've been the ones that we don't get a lot of, sort of we don't understand as much. And geographically they're massive electorates, so the work to bring people together is harder, I think. And so in those electorates where you might span, you know, thousands of kilometres and with a couple of regional centres, with very different identities, uh, there's there's been a lot of work by people to try and connect up to other other communities. So it's it's very varied, and I think it's never in our experience we haven't found an electorate that's just been driven by one person. 
So there's a narrative out there, I think, that this might be orchestrated by one group, maybe Climate 200 or even, you know, some sort of uh, elite, but it, it, it isn't the case. I think there are they are organically forming groups, but some of the groups have had more experience or capacity with community leadership than others. What I find really fascinating about this is that we often hear that people are disconnecting from democracy. And yet what your work suggests is that often people want to reconnect. They just want to reconnect in in different ways. We do hear a lot about young people disconnecting. Do you see young people engaging in these processes in the in the electorates and the communities that you're working in? Um, look, I think that that depends on the style of the group. So the, the origins, I guess, certainly in Indi were an intergenerational concern. So when you hear, and you know, Kath McGowan's got a fantastic book and the, the Voices for Indi have also got a book now about their their own um, journey on, on this. And you'll, you'll see in those accounts about how part of it was to really make that, you know, there was a concern in amongst these middle-aged, if you like, uh, boomer generation that, that the younger people were disengaging. And so certainly in the Indi case, there was a, an explicit attempt to work with and almost co-create something with, uh, often they were family members, but but to bring the younger generation forward. And that was a big part of, of their both work in the early stages, but also in their electoral campaigns. It was very playful, had a lot of sort of modern campaign style in in a kind of crowdsourcing way or they used sort of flash mobs so things that would appeal possibly to a younger generation some of the groups we've looked at that wasn't sort of an explicit intention but I think it certainly in in all the groups there's been I guess something what we have recognized is that a lot of people wouldn't normally have seen themselves as political actors so they'll say I've never participated in anything like this I never go to protests or this, I'm not part of a party. This is not the kind of stuff I end up volunteering or do, spending my time on. Um, but but it is there are definitely groups in the community that I would say that aren't well represented. And I mean, we didn't do survey research on this, and we haven't been able to get access to membership lists. But just from our observations, it is a sort of fairly white middle class picture, I guess you could say, well educated. That's of the active members. Having said that, there's a lot of women, so there's a, a very gendered aspect, and that, that's borne out also in the, the candidates, although that's kind of probably more of a strategic move by the communities to get someone who's electable. But at the work underneath is, is highly gendered, but that's consistent with the volunteering sector and community work in general, as you'd know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> And Carolyn, you also said earlier that in in some electorates a group was formed, but there was a decision not to to put forward a community representative. What kind of role did those groups then play? Was that about holding parties to account or holding the elected representative to account or, or was it a little different from that idea of accountability? No, actually, yeah, it was pretty much spot on what you said. In 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 some of the electorates, I guess they felt they either didn't feel like they had a candidate, they couldn't find someone that was willing to step forward or the, the, the community group 
so, so part, part of this work is not just a group of like six or seven people. Part of the the way in which these groups work, and this is following on from Indi, is to do a wide-scale listening project with the broader electorate to find out what issues people care about, what they want representation on. And there's different ways of doing that. As I said, there's no one model. And after that kind of listening work, communities then look for someone who might best represent that that those sets of issues and work in the way that the community is seeking representation. And so, so in some cases they don't find someone that's willing to step forward or someone that might hold the values that the electorate has suggested they wanted represented. And so they decide that actually they'd rather play a kind of monitoring or, as you said, accountability role where they facilitate public debate in, in the lead up to the election. So in the, those particular electorates where they didn't have a candidate, the community didn't put forward an independent candidate, they sponsored candidate debates in, in, in the public realm and online in order to give voters an opportunity to see all the candidates. So they played a, a, a sort of mediating role trying to, to bring the, the candidates out because in some electorates there's none of that public display of debate. We expect that at the leaders of the parties' debates, but at the electorate level, um, there's, there's there's not really a tradition of that in all electorates. In some, as you might know, um, there are traditions of that, tend to be in the rural and regional seats. There's a real expectation in the electorate that the candidates come out, perform, show, this, show, show what they're made of, but that's not the case in all electorates. And so these groups, you know, facilitated that kind of debate. And then post-election, I guess the role they play is to continue that listening project and to take those things that they're hearing to to the elected member, whoever that might be. Carolyn, as, as you said earlier, Australia has a deeply embedded two-party system. You know, we, we have minor parties um, that sometimes play a very significant role in the parliamentary process, but it's, it's really a, a deeply embedded two-party system. These local community initiatives are, are really fascinating in terms of the way they're challenging that. What do you think this this work around democratic repair at the local level and the, the shift towards community independence is telling us about the future of Australia's democratic representation and, and what people expect? Yeah, well, we're still trying to unpack that and I guess the next election, whenever that is called, will kind of reveal the impact, the long-standing impact, and give us a sense of that. But certainly, going into the next election, as commentators have noted, there is no safe seat anymore. I mean, this idea that elected representatives, once they've been elected, can kind of forget their constituency and focus on their parliamentary work, which I'm not saying is not important, but there has been a tendency in our system. In, in certain seats for the MP to, to really disengage um, from their constituents. And that can't be taken for granted anymore. They're, they're, so there's seats now that may not have elected an independent. So take the seat of Bradfield in um, North Sydney. I mean, they had one of the biggest swings away from the Liberal Party in, in the country. And Nicolette Buller didn't get elected, but but that that is a very uh, marginal seat now. So, and that's there's there's about ten or so seats that have fallen into that situation where they were very safe, and now they're very marginal. So the broader impact of that is that I guess party MPs are also starting to think about how they might be a more connected representative. So that that is that is changing the way. 
that our elected representatives do their work. And it also is probably changing the kinds of skill sets and also maybe the resourcing they need. So just to give you a little example, um, you know, some, some MPs are trying to do more consultative work as part of their constituency engagement, but they actually can't use any of their constituency funds for constituency work to, to hire out a room, for example, a public room to do to, to, to have a kind of local town hall. That has to come from their personal pocket. So there are there are things in our system that actively prevent our representatives from doing deep listening and connective work. So those sorts of things I think will have to change if the the read in the community, which I think this the electoral results last election demonstrated, that people are wanting a more connected uh, local MP. And the days of a safe seat and a, a kind of party MP, that they're kind of over, I think. Carolyn, it's just fascinating to think how the rise of the community independence and that role that communities are playing in kind of saying we want democracy done differently is potentially changing our our system of democratic representation much more broadly. And I guess historically there have been those concerns that uh, a very connected MP is campaigning for their re-election, whereas what communities seem to be saying is, no, this isn't campaigning, this is listening, and we want to be listening to and we want to be connected, and, and that's a major shift and a fascinating one. We're going to come back and talk about these issues more. We're just going to take a really short break. So, listeners, don't go away. We'll be back with Carolyn Hendricks in just a moment. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Professor Carolyn Hendricks from the Crawford School, and we're talking about some really fascinating developments that are happening across Australia, and particularly in regional areas, around democratic repair and a rethinking of the way we're represented through our political system. Carolyn, before the break, we were talking about, I guess, some of the real positives that come out of this this shift whereby parliamentarians are being required to be much more connected to their local communities. But I wonder, is there either a downside or, or perhaps some things that we need to be cautious of with the rise of this movement? You know, if we look in countries around the world, we sometimes see the real fragmentation of parliament when we see lots of, of very small parties trying to form coalitions to, to establish government. Could we end up in a situation where 
we see that kind of fragmentation in Australia or where our focus is on such localised issues that it's hard for us to think about national issues that are, are important to all of us. Yeah, I mean, I think you've pointed out some of some of the risks with a with a kind of hyper localized focus that it, that if if seats become so marginal, the the campaign never stops. So that the MP is constantly in campaign mode, and that performative stuff that we all get so sick of in the election period just keeps going and going. And that obviously would be a distraction from from the MP being able to think about broader national issues. That, that, that they need to do in their committee work and, and their parliamentary work more broadly. There's also, you know, questions around in, inequality. So I mentioned before that, you know, some of these groups are, most of the groups, you know, there's a there's a class element, you could say, with, with well-educated people being the ones that mostly self-organise and, and the volunteers itself, we don't have data on this, but, but a picture you can imagine emerging is that where you get a kind of, high capacitized group of, of Australian public pushing forward these candidates, leaving behind the the people in the community that that aren't able to self-organize, don't have the time, don't have the resources. And and that's in a way, if you look back at the history of political parties, particularly the Labour Party, I mean that that was one of the reasons that parties formed to, to have that collective voice for those who couldn't self and who couldn't collectivize. So I don't think we're at a point in Australia where the parties are going to be disbanded. So I think what's happening is maybe, I mean, you mentioned fracturing. I think you could see it as possibly a, a, a maybe a diversification. And I mean, what we're also seeing is that the parties themselves are starting to think more about diversity within. So the the, the, the current federal upper house is, you know, the most diverse we've ever seen. There's more women, there's more people of colour, um, you know, there's more sort of cross benches. So there's, there's, it's not just an, an influence of these community independents, it's a broader rethinking within the parties about the kinds of diversity that they might bring forward. And then also if if you look at what that diverse group of people now who, who are the elected representatives in parliament are doing, you know, some of them, even though they are elected on a very local basis, the independents I'm talking about here particularly, they are taking on national campaigns, whether that's around, um, you know, the Anti-Corruption Commission, around Helen Haynes' work on, you know, community energy. You've got Monique Ryan, you know, with a campaign now and a bill to try and fix, sort of fix the House, you know, the democratic practices within the House. So there's a whole range of, I would say, kind of evidence that's emerging that although locally supported and and propped up, a lot of these MPs are working on, on large national issues, whether that's on the the institution itself, that the parliament and its practices, or on complex issues like, you know, obesity, climate change or, or corruption. So I think this is evolving and I guess it's what we can't do is measure what's happening or, or assess what's happening now using the lens of the past. I think we it, it's an iterative kind of innovative space and looking at all this through the lens of parties or or European kind of type politics, I just don't think is useful because it's so dynamic and it's taking a life of its own on, I think. 
We had Helen Haynes on the podcast earlier this year, and it was fascinating to hear her talk about the way she balances those issues and the way she's working you know, deeply and locally, but then um, some of those national debates that she's been leading, particularly around issues of corruption and anti-corruption and, you know, and how we think about our democracy. But Carolyn, um, a, a part of your research that I found absolutely fascinating is the work you've been doing around shadow representation. Can you explain to us what shadow representation is and how it's playing out in some of the communities where you're doing your research? Yeah, so so this is some work that actually emerged, or it's a, it's a concept, a label that was first used in, in Bradfield, the electorate Bradfield that I mentioned before, and it was used by the independent candidate there, Nicolette Buller. So she was was unsuccessful in the 2022 election, but she was very close. And she, post-election, was under a lot of pressure from her supporters and you could say 48% of the electorate who voted for her to, to continue representing. And so she crafted and, and constructed this role called a shadow representative. So that was a label that came from, from her and we've been, this is again with Richard Reed, who's working with me on this on this project, been looking at that that role, how she constructed it, how it was received, and what it might mean going forward. Is this is this a role that others are taking on? So it's it's sort of trying to understand what would a shadow representative do? So we we kind of this idea of shadowing is pretty common in in government. We have a we have a shadow cabinet, we have shadow ministers and effectively they're there certainly in the Westminster system to try and play a kind of accountability and a, and a counter voice to the minister or the cabinet. But in at the electorate level there's no such thing ever as as, as someone who steps in and and shadows the formerly elected representative. But what Nicolette Bull has been doing in Bradfield and I should say she doesn't hold that title anymore because she's announced that she's contesting for the next election. So she's moved officially into campaign mode, even though the election hasn't been called. But for a period of a good 18 months, she carried this label and, and had a website as the shadow representative. And she did a lot of work crafting this role. And it was an explicit sort of role around the deficits of what the MP, who was legitimately elected in the election, what what he is not doing for the electorate. So a lot of that was around certain issues that needed to be voiced. But also, this is not just someone coming and saying, look, I represent the people of Bradfield like an advocacy group might, because there are many of those who, who have issues and they might represent them. They're kind of representatives in, of issues. But this shadow representative role was explicitly constructed around the fact that she did have some sort of electoral support that was almost as much as the elected representative himself. And so, yeah, in the work that we've been doing, we've been looking at how she's kind of constructed that role, the kinds of things that she's doing. So she more or less mimics what an MP would do. So she has an office in the main street, you know, in a prominent area in the electorate. She has a website, she has a newsletter. So all the constituency work that you might expect of a MP, the shadow representative was basically doing as well. So in a way, trying to keep in contact with her supporters and provide a, a voice on issues where she felt and her supporters felt that the elected member wasn't 
particularly active and and particularly around things on climate change and the voice which the, the current member as a member of the liberal party wasn't wasn't supportive of so we have been looking at both the democratic opportunities here but also the dangers of this kind of role when when you're permanently in election campaign um, and the MP who's legitimately elected is is constantly looking over their shoulder at someone who's playing a role like them, certainly locally, and not allowing that MP to, to sort of um, have the space to do his or her work. It's a really fascinating development. And when someone has you know, 48% of the vote, perhaps they can make the case that they do have a representative role, a legitimate representative role to play. You know, if someone runs and gets... 20% of the vote or 10 or 5%, do they still have that kind of legitimacy by virtue of having campaigned and run for election? It, it raises some really interesting issues about the numbers. Yeah, and it raises, I mean, for us what we're digging into is also how these these new ways of doing representation are kind of unsettling the conventions or the norms of what we would expect. So, you know, the, it, there's no written rule about this, but the convention in Australia after an election is if you've lost the election, you you, you step back and you, you, go, you go quiet until the next election is called and you retreat, if you like. Um, and there was quite a scathing um, commentary on, on the, the sort of audacious move that, that, that Buller took after the election. You know, it was I think the title of the article was, you know, pseudo MP uh, channels her inner Trump. Sort of the, the insinuation there being that, that you know, Nicolette Buller was stepping into a sort of trying to con- like challenge the whole election, its electoral result as well. You know, we've interviewed Nicolette Buller, and I, she, she's not trying to delegitimise the, um, the the sitting member, but but I think she sees a legitimate role for herself locally in terms of trying to represent a whole range of issues that the the party now in power in that election in that electorate is not uh, voicing. So, I mean, there's other examples in our paper that we also look at that are less explicit in terms of the labelling of this. So so in the seat of Broome in Queensland, um, Susie Holt has taken on a similar kind of role but called herself the community advocate as opposed to a shadow representative. So she's performing a role and being actually drawn into various community and public debates because she represents something that's that there's no formal structure for. So she'll She's not in campaign mode, but she is providing a community advocate voice. So she's not a representative of, of a group or an interest group. She's actually continuing to be a candidate um, that's not legitimately elected. So all of this is unsettling what we might think of as conventional democratic practice. It's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> and it's a conversation that I think we could continue for quite a long time. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll begin to draw the conversation to a close. And, and as we do, I really wanted to ask about your future fellowship. I, I mentioned in the introduction that you've just been awarded that future fellowship. It is a, a very prestigious fellowship um, in academia in Australia. And you're planning to study representation, political representation in Australia. And I know, Carolyn, you haven't actually started the project yet, but I wonder if you could just give us a a little bit of a preview about what you're planning to do in that study and what you're hoping it's going to be able to tell us about political representation. 
Yeah, so this is a really exciting opportunity. I feel really honoured to to have been awarded the Future Fellowship, and it's it's squarely focused on Australia and and the the practices of political representation in Australia. And I guess what I'm seeking to do there is look at ways of strengthening political representation on the basis of a lot of the things we've been talking about already. That there is this dynamism in our democratic system at the moment, and it it is putting different expectations on our elected representatives. And the question the project's really looking at is how are our elected representatives, particularly the new ones, how are they responding to these changing expectations? And what can we do institutionally to build the capacity of our elected representatives to do this kind of listening work, to be more connected representatives? So the work in the project is aimed at trying to understand how representatives come to learn to represent. So we we assume that when a politician is elected, they know what to do in their job. And over the years in Parliament, there's been a strong recognition that they need a lot of briefings before they come in. And a lot of that is focused on their parliamentary work. And understandably, it's a complex institution. But the project that I'm looking at is really trying to look at what are these representatives doing in their electorate while they're while they're representing? How are they learning to represent? How how do their practices change? And what innovations are they using? So as our parliaments become more diverse, our MPs are bringing uh, listening skills and connective skills from other professions and other walks of life. And that's interesting, I think, for the whole of parliament to, to learn what are other ways of engaging with constituents that, that we could share? So it's got a, an investigative element, but hopefully some very practical resources for elected representatives as they go about their, their, their work with constituents. Caroline, I think we're all going to be looking forward to, to hearing what comes out of that research. So we will be very keen to talk with you 12 or 18 months down the track to, to hear how it's going. A kind of a final reflection, perhaps, you know, the the crisis or perhaps challenges is a better word of democracy that we've referred to a a couple of times during this conversation, a global in nature. But as you've said, Carolyn, there are some really interesting innovations um, happening here in Australia that perhaps aren't happening in the same way elsewhere in the world. We started with a very big question, and I'd, I'd love to end with your reflections on another big question. What do you think is needed in Australia, but perhaps also in other long-standing democracies, to rebuild trust in political institutions and in our elected representatives? Is it the kind of things that we've been talking about today or are other things needed to rebuild that trust? Yeah, big question, Sharon. I think I think there's no magic bullet here. I think there's lots of fronts that, that we need to think about and there's a big industry and a lot of scholarship on, you know, what's called a democratic innovation or democratic renewal and that ranges from you know electoral reform you know right through to lots of experiments in participatory and deliberative forums I guess I would argue that a lot of those efforts are going into institutions or mechanisms to bring the public into our existing democratic institutions whether that be you know parliaments or um, elections, etc. And we need that. We need to keep people engaged in those formal institutions. But I, my work's been really about trying to understand what citizens themselves 
are doing to try and renew democracy and what can we learn from those efforts because there's a danger of these renewal efforts becoming very technocratic and disconnecting from what makes people participate in politics which is often things that we don't think about like they like to be engaged in fun ways they like the socialness they like the relationalness and they like to know that the politics that they're engaging in is meaningful to the place that they're living in and the communities that they're connected in so I'd, I'd put a big plug in there for making sure that our democracies remain connected to place. And that is a conversation that we are hearing across the country and in many parts of the world about the importance of place in people's lives and the importance of thinking about place-based alongside national and global solutions. And Carolyn, it has been an absolute delight to talk to you today. This is such fascinating work that you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing it with us. And good luck with the Future Fellowship. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. And yeah, I hope to see Anna back here next time. She will definitely be back with us next week. Thanks. I hope everyone enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. You know, hearing Carolyn talk about the way parliamentarians can learn and can listen, I find really fascinating. Our elected representatives are thrown into an incredibly complex job and we expect a great deal of them. But that point that Carolyn was making at the end about the need for parliamentarians to learn about the role that they play is so important and something that we we often don't think about. And just reflecting on different ways of representing and the way those ways of representing are changing is fascinating. And perhaps we're learning towards new ways of doing citizenship as people become more and more involved in local place-based initiatives around politics. But I was also fascinated to hear Carolyn talk not just about the opportunities, but also perhaps around some causes for concern or at least caution. You know, can local place-based initiatives become elite? Can they move away from promoting equity? How legitimate are they? There are some fascinating questions for us to ponder on. And I'm looking forward to hearing Carolyn talk with us again when she's a little further down the track with the research that she's now starting. But one of the things that I continually kept reflecting on as Carolyn was talking is that We so often criticise our elected representatives, sometimes with real cause, but it is such a critical role that they play. And perhaps sometimes we also need to, to think about how we care for and how we support our elected representatives as we expect them to represent us well. So lots coming out of that conversation with Carolyn for us to think about and to reflect on. This podcast is produced by the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, please do leave us a review. We love to hear from our audience, so please reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford, through our Crawford School LinkedIn page, or by email at policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. A huge thanks to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. Arna Greta Hunter will be back with us again next week and we do have a very special end-of-year episode lined up, so do join us then. But today, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. <laughs>